You're listening to The Creation Academy, a weekly podcast defending the truth of God's Word in biblical creation science. I'm your host, Steve Schramm, and this week's lesson is on genetic evidence for a recent creation. Let's get started. So last week, uh, we uh, dealt with the human ancestry and the fossil evidence. So we dealt with um, where we came from. We dealt with our origins from a scientific perspective for the first time uh, in this series. Up to that point, we'd been looking at cultural evidence and things of that nature. And so we've started talking about the fossil evidence. Uh, Now, I accidentally made a mistake last week when I was recording. And uh, to be honest with you, I think I'm just going to roll with it. And what I did... I meant last week to include two chapters in that study. Uh, The chapter that I dealt with there, which I believe was chapter uh, 7, okay, or excuse me, chapter 8. And then I also meant to deal with chapter 9 as well. And chapter 9 was written by Dr., or excuse me, not Dr., but uh, Martin Lubenow. Martin Lubenow, and he is... uh, uh, well known for his uh, his book Bones of Contention, Bones of Contention, and you should look that up. Uh, that's a really really good book. And um, and anyway, he he's kind of an expert uh, on human fossils as well, and he dealt specifically with Neanderthals in chapter nine of the book. And I accidentally forgot to include that study in last week's episode. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, throughout the episode, you'll hear me even reference the fact that we we're going to talk about Neanderthals later. And uh, I had neglected to look at my notes beforehand to see that I was actually supposed to include that uh, in that study. So anyway, uh, I didn't get to do that. uh, But reading through the chapter, I think it is something that we can skip. Uh, I do want to give you just a couple highlights from it before we move on to the genetic evidence. uh, But that's where we're going to spend our time this morning. I think that'll be a more profitable study for you. And again, I do encourage you to go get the book, Searching for Adam, Genesis, and the Truth About Man's Origin. And uh, when you get that, you can certainly read that uh, that chapter by Mr. Lubinow. It is most certainly a good chapter, and, uh, and I think you'll enjoy it. Now, he starts his chapter out by uh, simply saying this, that there are three lines of evidence demonstrating that the Neanderthals were fully human ancestors of modern humans in spite of their undeserved, sordid reputation. Uh, First is the most recent, which is the nuclear DNA evidence. Second, there's strong fossil evidence that Neanderthals lived in close association and integration with modern humans. Third, the cultural evidence demonstrates that Neanderthal behavior and thought was fully human. The evidence in all these areas is extensive. And that's certainly a true statement. If you'll, if you'll study that out for any, any amount of time at all, you'll find that creationists for, for quite a while have accepted uh, and taught that Neanderthals were simply humans. And uh, they were most certainly a little different than our modern humans today. That uh, this isn't to say that there was no differences. There certainly were. Um, but in in burial practice, in religious practice, um, in fossil location, especially, we can kind of see where it looks like humans and Neanderthals have interbred. We most definitely have that evidence uh, from a DNA and genetic perspective. So um, all the all the data points line up, you could say, and it most certainly points to the fact that Neanderthals were simply humans. So that is not a problem at all. Uh, some of the artistic license, again, when you get into these museums and such, will make it seem like they were a much more uh, primitive looking and primitive acting um, 
uh, species, and certainly they depict as if they are, you know, on their way from from apes to humans. But but that's not the case. We have no problem as young Earth creationists uh, believing that uh, Neanderthals are simply just a early form of human, probably sometime post flood. Uh, pretty pretty soon post-flood. All right, so another important thought by Mr. Lubinow in his chapter, and, uh, and I'll close with this, is that to young Earth creationists, uh, the Neanderthals are not mysterious, but incredibly intriguing. Based upon the Genesis testimony, we've always viewed the Neanderthals as the fully human ancestors of some modern humans, probably Europeans and West Asia, uh, excuse me, Western Asians, Hence, creationists have referred to them as Homo sapiens sapiens, or as a subspecies of modern humans, Homo sapiens neanderthalensis, or, using biblical terminology, humankind. Either way, we believe that they would be fully capable of reproducing with modern humans if they were living today. That has just been confirmed scientifically. From a biblical perspective, they were a post-flood Ice Age people, specializing in hunting the large, grazing animals that were abundant toward the end of the Ice Age and afterward. So as you can see here, uh, we, we certainly have no problem in creationist thought with uh, including the Neanderthals into the human category. Uh, no problem there whatsoever. All right, so that is going to kind of close out our study on um, the fossil evidence and also on um, a look at Neanderthals. I think that if you want to dive further into that, this would be a great opportunity, again, for you to go purchase the book. But otherwise, we want to move on to the genetic evidence offered by Drs. Nathaniel Jensen and Doc- and, uh, and Jeffrey Tompkins. All right, um, these are two, uh, just <laughs> from a personal perspective, uh, perspective here, these are two very, very smart individuals. Uh, I've got Dr. Jensen's latest book, uh, Replacing Darwin, The New Origin of Species, and what an undertaking. And, uh, and that is a great book. I'm only about a third of the way through it. I'm, I'm enjoying it so far. Um, it's heavy, though. You know, it, it's a heavy book. Um, as far as the knowledge that is contained in it, it's a little hard to understand if you don't have a, a good scientific uh, knowledge uh, backbone, all right, if you don't understand how genetics and DNA works. And he's going to explain some of that um, in the opening chapters of it and, and kind of give you the most basic definition as possible. Uh, but but this is complicated stuff. And so while it is a good book and I recommend you get it, uh, just know that it, it's definitely a little heavy despite it being the layman's, uh, you know, publication on the matter. Of course, he has technical papers as well, but but this is actually the layman's book. And so it's a good read, though. It's a really good read. So uh, Jensen actually has a PhD uh, from Harvard University in cell and developmental biology. And he is now on staff at Answers in Genesis and uh, currently researching um, using genetic tools, the origin of species uh, from a young earth creation perspective. I mean, that's really his focus. He is really trying to get down to the bottom of ways to test um, the origin of, of species, even with regard to uh, humans, or I should say, especially with regard to humans. Um, and then even taking that some of that DNA modeling and uh, trying to make uh, predictions for uh, other organisms, all right? So he is really involved in this discussion about the biblical origin of humanity. Uh, Tompkins is a Ph.D. in genetics from Clemson and an M.S. in plant science from the University of Idaho. Of course, he also has a B.S. in agriculture education from Washington State University. And he was on the faculty there uh, of genetics and biochemistry at Clemson for a decade. 
All right. So now he specializes in genomics and bioinformatics at ECR, uh, excuse me, at ICR. And actually, I think he might now be heading up uh, some of the research division. So both of these guys are well qualified. Uh, I've read I've read many of their papers um, written on matters such as this, and so they've definitely uh, approached it from I think a very fair perspective. And I like the way that they that they outline this chapter. Um, they're very graceful in their language uh, and in their in their speech. They um, are, however, very uh, critical of views who would tend to diminish the biblical origin of. Of humanity, now that they don't address the church so much. Um, in this case, uh, they do address by logos, though, and uh, they address by logos quite a bit. And because some of the claims and exchanges that they've had back and forth with them, and we're kind of going to see that unfold as we read through uh, this material. So the authors begin by asking four Im- important questions, and these questions are basically going to form the foundation for their response uh, in this chapter to the issues. All right, so the four questions are this. Number one, from whom did humans originate? Ape-like primates or fully human people? So from a, a genetic perspective, how can we know where we came from? Is there any reason to suggest that we actually did not come from an ape-like primate uh, or some sort of um, ape-like ancestor between us and apes? Um, Is it possible that we just originated from a pair of fully human people? And that's actually the next question. So how many individuals then spawned the human race? Uh, Was it a population or was it simply a pair? whom the Bible calls Adam and Eve. Now, many theistic evolutionists have tried to to somehow get away from this and say, well, you know, it looks like maybe God pulled some uh, arbitrary, you know, pair of individuals from this population that we all evolved from and and placed them into Genesis 1 and put them in the garden and and bam, there we have the beginning chapters of our Bible. Um, But I don't believe that the Bible reads that way. Uh, I think that that would be pretty deceptive of God, in my opinion, um, to to lay it out that way when it doesn't appear uh, to have been that way. Uh, I believe God can state his word clearly, all right? So uh, I believe that we came from the first created pair, Adam and Eve. That simple, all right? Question three, when did humans originate? Hundreds of thousands of years ago or just about... 6,000 years ago. So are we ancient or recent? Of course, uh, 6,000 is pretty old (laughs) in my estimation, but um, relatively speaking, you know, we want to kind of see are are, are we a more recent uh, species or did we actually originate a long time ago? And then fourth and finally, where did modern human populations originate? Africa or Ararat? Africa or Ararat, and so that's going to be a good study. So the uh, authors first kind of start out by giving us a little preface into how science works. And if you want to have a um, a really good discussion on this, if you want to look at this, you can check out our podcast episode called Is Evolution Just a Theory? Is Evolution Just a Theory? So if you go to steveshram.com slash creation-academy. You can go there and scroll down on the page and you'll find that podcast episode, Is Evolution Just a Theory? 
alternatively, I will go ahead and put a link to it here in the show notes so you can get right to it if you want to. But uh, somewhere in that uh, in that podcast episode, and I believe it was between 42 and 45 minutes in, uh, somewhere in there, we discussed uh, the three types of scientific experiment. And I actually pulled that from this book. I was reading through this book at the time, uh, and I noticed that, and I really, really appreciated um, how Dr. Jensen laid that out. And uh, so this is actually Jensen talking in this part of the book, and uh, he actually got this, now get this, he got it from his professor, in secular college, his evolution uh, by one of his biology professors. So this is not some creationist machination. Okay, we didn't just make this up. Uh, I don't know where. This is a scientific idea that there are three types of experiments. All right, so uh, one type of experiment, there's a type one, a type two, a type three. All right, a type one experiment would be a head-to-head comparison. In other words, this model, you know, model A makes this prediction, model B makes this prediction. These two can go head-to-head, and whichever one fits the data better should be considered uh, the winner, for lack of a better term. It should be considered the most reasonable to conclude. Okay. Um, that would be a type one experiment. A type two experiment um, would basically be um, like the creation model would would make a prediction uh, that is irrelevant to the evolutionary discussion and vice versa. Okay, so um, when we're trying to find out how many animals are on the ark, creationists can you know do models and, and and build models and do the science on that to try to get to the bottom of it. But that kind of a discussion would be irrelevant to the evolutionist because the evolutionist has no reason to try to figure out how many animals there were on the ark. So you know if we get to a reasonable understanding of how many animals were on the ark, that does nothing to falsify the theory of evolution, or even to make it less likely. They're just completely unrelated. All right, so that's the second type. And then the type three experiment would be the one that is just completely irrelevant overall, because generally speaking, both models would make the same predictions. So you can't really draw anything meaningful uh, from your results in the case of a type three experiment. So I'm going to actually reflect on uh, Jensen's actual words here. I'm going to give you his actual words concerning this, and that should kind of confirm what I've said and maybe give you a little better understanding of it. He says, there are three types of experiments in the world. The first type distinguishes between two competing hypotheses, regardless of which way the experiment turns out. For example, if you hypothesize A, but the experiment demonstrates B, you've still learned something. This is the best and rarest type of experiment. The second type is valuable only if the experiment turns out to be one of the two possible ways. For example, if you hypothesize A, but the but uh, the experiment does not support A and instead supports a whole host of alternative hypotheses, you've learned very little. If instead the experiment had confirmed hypothesis A, it would have been valuable. Okay, so... Um, Understanding there that uh, it really matters to understand what type of experiment you're doing. The reason why this really matters is because most of the arguments brought up against a recent creation fall into the type 2, if not usually the type 3 experiment. In other words, uh, most of the arguments brought against creationists do n- contribute nothing meaningful to the discussion. There's there's no way. It just doesn't disprove creationism, either because the model excel- itself or the experiment itself is irrelevant, or because creationism makes the same exact predictions. 
All right. So think about it in those terms. Now, we all agree with what makes good science. Now, BioLogos, um, and this is one area where they address BioLogos uh, in this discussion, and actually this specific um, idea is mentioned a couple of times throughout. But BioLogos often parrots this, uh, this phrase. The reason Christian anti-evolutionary approaches are absent from the mainstream scientific literature is not because scientists are theologically or philosophically biased against them, but rather because they offer little in the way of useful tools for making accurate predictions about the natural world. Now, uh, Jensen and Tompkins, if you read the book, uh, most certainly take issue with this statement. And in a large way, the rest of this chapter is written to prove their statement wrong. And as a matter of fact, they, uh, at the end of the chapter, restate this and then put it in the context of the discussion that has been had as to what kind of predictions we actually have and can make um, regarding the specific genetic models that we are getting ready to talk about. And so it's very interesting. Uh, so is it really true? Is BioLogos making a true statement? Do creationists really get left out of the picture because we have no useful tools for making predictions? That's an interesting question. So let's uh, begin looking at this study and seeing if we can find an answer to that. So the first question then is from whom? Ape-like primates are fully human people. Who did we come from? Well, the current evolutionary literature uh, identifies the chimpanzee as the closest living relative of humans. And evolutionists place this split somewhere uh, between these two lineages uh, from a common ape-like ancestor, okay, not from a chimpanzee, but they placed this split about 3 million to 13 million years ago. Now, on the creation timeline, we realize that that much time is not necessary, nor is it required. We believe in the supernatural creation of Adam and Eve just a little over 6,000 years ago. Of course, the flood event about 4,500 years ago, and then the Tower of Babel event just shortly thereafter. And of course, the Tower of Babel, I find that most people aren't really aware of how culturally significant this event was. We just kind of think about it, oh, I guess this is how we got our languages. But this is the way that humanity dispersed across the world. This was God's plan to, yes, uh, divide the languages, but also to create different cultures, to relocate people in different places. This is where God really set into motion uh, the whole idea of where different cultures would live. If you study, it's actually a very, very interesting study uh, to find out how culturally significant the Tower of Babel is. All right, so um, now the time factor in here is very, very crucial um, for obvious reasons, uh, you know, not the least of which is the fact that uh, it's going to result in varying expectations. So what I mean by that is when you're looking at the data before you, and you're trying to build a model about the origin of humanity. What data is included in that model is largely going to depend on how much time you think is necessary. 
And this has to do with the relatedness of humans to apes and things like that. Because if you're trying to determine what the past looks like with respect to humans coming from other humans, that experiment looks a whole lot different than the one where you are trying to figure out at what time an ape-like ancestor diverged into you know, chimpanzees and apes in this case, seeing as how that uh, that is the claim that we are most closely related to chimpanzees. And this is something that Dr. Tompkins uh, has done a lot of work on and has devoted much study to. So I have a, uh, a, an idea that this particular little portion was was written by him. So we're looking at the question then briefly, are humans 99% genetically identical to chimps? Because that's the claim. Even today, if you look up the secular literature, the claim is that we're 99% genetically identical to chimps. Now, something that we need to understand about this. This is merely a type 2 experiment. In other words, in other words, check this out. Even, even if, even if we were 99%, if this was proven that we were 99% genetically identical to chimpanzees, it would not affect the truthfulness of the creation model one bit. Now, I think we would need to look at that and be honest about what that would mean, saying that, look, I mean, if you know, they've got, a, in other words, they've got a point, right? If we're 99% similar to chimps, okay, well, maybe that's a good point. Um, and I don't think we are, we're going to explain that. But, but even if we were, we would need to all come to terms with the fact that it does nothing to validate or invalidate the creation model. Why is that? Well, it's because chimp similarity is not part of the creation model. Um, again, it would be like trying to uh, tell the evolutionist to prove their origin story by determining how many animals were on Noah's Ark. In other words, if we come pretty close and we start to make good accurate predictions about what kind of animals that we feel were on Noah's Ark and and the science starts to line up and things look right, no matter how close we get it, that has nothing in the world to do with the truthfulness or the invalidity of the evolutionary model. It, it's two it's two separate kinds of experiments. So uh, just Keep that in mind as we go through this. Now, the author's comment, this. um, The silence of the young earth creation model on human-chimp genetic differences is not a weakness of the model. And I think that example is going to sound kind of familiar. They say that we could just as well challenge the evolutionists to predict the number of animals that were taken on board Noah's Ark, right? So think about that for a minute. It's just completely uh, two different things. Now, if you know anything about DNA, and we're getting ready to talk about the DNA similarities between chimps, uh, if you know anything about DNA, it's a four-letter chemical alphabet, right? Um, A, T, C, and G, which stands for adenine, uh, thymine, cytosine, and guanine. Now, this is a language, and this is something that we're going to deal with in the future quite a bit um, because I'm interested in this study. I am uh, into information technology. That's what I do for a living. I love computers. I love computer science. And so uh, information theory is something that very much interests me. So uh, if you like that at all, stay tuned on this podcast. We're going to be talking about this um, on down the road, okay? Um, But essentially, DNA is a chemical alphabet. It creates words sentences, etc. The structure is very much similar to how we would formulate our language. Um, But 
we need to understand that the DNA copying process uh, isn't quite as pretty, okay, as just copying, uh, you know, letters on 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 a piece of paper. Okay, it's a little different than that. Um, so, just to read what what they say here: when DNA is copied in sperm and egg cells prior to conception, the copying process is imperfect. So, the rate of copying mistakes, which are called mutations, that's probably a word you're more familiar with, has been measured in both humans and chimpanzees, and the rates are fairly similar. About sixty mutations happen each generation. So keep that in mind. Our mutation rates are pretty much similar between chimps and humans. So here's the general observations. So using rounded numbers, if uh, the human and chimpanzee lineages split 3 to 13 million years ago, and if the years from one generation to the next are about 20 years then that means 150,000 to 650,000 generations have passed since the two species last shared a common ancestor. In each lineage, about 60 DNA mutations happen in each of those hundreds of thousands of generations, leading to an expectation that the DNA of humans and the DNA of chimpanzees should differ by about 18 to 18 million DNA letters. So just let that sink in. So if we split 3 to 13 million years ago, we've got 150,000 to 650,000 generations, 60 DNA mutations um, in each of those generations, and so the difference in DNA should be between 18 and 80 million letters. Now since the total letter count in humans and chimps is around 3 billion DNA letters. Evolutionists expect uh, about a 1-3% to genetic difference between the two species today. This is what they expect, and this is what they predict. But the actual difference is about 12%. It's about 10 times higher than the evolutionary predicted value. In other words, we're not as similar as we've been told. The authors state rather emphatically that human uh, humans and chimpanzees are not 99% identical. They are only 88% identical, which even that sounds like a lot, but you have to understand what that means. This means that both species differ by nearly 400 million DNA letters. 400 million DNA letters. That is a huge divergence. That's huge. Now you might ask, well, isn't 88% similarity still... Doesn't that mean something? I suppose it could. I suppose that... uh, I mean, I'm not saying that this means that this is off-the-table evidence for evolution. I think that it um, makes it a lot more unlikely, okay, that humans and chimps are related. I I mean, I know they're not because of what the Bible says, but ultimately I think that this particular experiment makes it a lot less likely uh, that this happened. And, of course, there is a little bit of fluidity in the um, divergence estimates, okay? Uh, But generally speaking, we're only about 88% similar to chimps. Now, I'm inclined to think that that's because we have um, 
design features, uh, and we are primates, and there are things that make us um, similar to chimps in our functions and in our um, in our routines. So uh, I think if the designer was going to design humans uh, with DNA, and he was going to design chimps with DNA, and he was going to design fish with DNA, I think it would be reasonable to conclude, generally speaking, this is not the scientific way of talking about it, but I think generally speaking, it would be reasonable to conclude that the human DNA will be more similar to the chimp DNA than to the fish DNA. This is just a, a common sense prediction that I have, and lo and behold, that seems to ring true. Uh, however, it would be a little suspicious if the human and chimp DNA were actually 99% similar, but it doesn't appear that they are. The actual difference, again, is around a 12% difference, so 88% difference with a difference of nearly 400 million DNA letters, which is huge. That's um, much more than the time given would be able to uh, produce. All right, so... Um, what about another well-repeated uh, or well-parroted evidence for evolution, the uh, relative genetic patterns, also known as nested hierarchies? Um, anybody who knows what they're talking about in this debate will often bring this up, nested hierarchies. All right, now nearly every single one of the evidence presented by biologos and mainstream geneticists represents, as we've seen, a type 3 or, at best, type 2 experiment. This is one of those cases. As a matter of fact, we're not going to spend much time there at all because we make the same predictions on this point. Um, in other words, there are humans are more genetically similar to apes than fish or than uh, bananas, which is what I have been talking about, okay? Um, are nested hierarchies good evidence for evolution? If we're just asking that question, yes. Nested hierarchical patterns are something that evolutionists use, rightfully so, as good evidence for their position because it seems to support it. However, that I am aware of, and I try to stay aware of this, that I am aware of there is no specific creationist prediction for what this ratio of similarities and differences might look like. Okay, so um, it, just because the evolutionary data may, and I'm not claiming that it does, but that it may fit some of the predictions that they make as far as, you know, what they say, I mean, chromosomes in the right place and, and, and everything looking just, just right, everything as they would expect. I'm not saying that, that that is not good evidence for evolution, but what I am saying is that I don't know that we have a specific model that makes predictions against which you could test either one and figure out, you know, which um, which one is more likely. However, generally speaking, again, we make the same predictions on this point. We do believe that humans are going to be more genetically similar to apes than bananas. And really, to conclude anything else is would just be mere speculation. Um Baromenology, by the way, is a field that uh, where much of this research is going on. Um, guys like Dr. Todd Wood uh, are are really taking up the helm on this, and there's so much more work to be done um, that it's just staggering. Really, I mean, there there's way more work to be done on determining uh, what kind of um, 
animals we think can be included in different groups of kinds, um, different uh, Brahmins or hollow Brahmins. Um, so there is much more work to be done in that area. And if you don't know, baromenology is the study of created kinds. So bara meaning created, and then men, uh, the Hebrew word men for kinds, as we find in the Bible, God says that they will bring forth after their kind. So in biblical terms, we don't deal with species or family or genus or order or kingdom, phyla, family. We, we don't deal with those um, in a creation worldview. We deal with created kinds. And so that's where we build our models from. So um, without getting into the specifics of that, we make the same general predictions on this point. We predict um, a certain degree of similarity and differences um, between um, uh, groups of organisms that are um, anatomically similar, just to put it one way. Okay. Um, so what about another one that we hear a lot about human chromosome two fusion? I've heard this one quite a bit. Um, essentially chimps have, um, 48 and humans have 46, um, chromosomes here. Okay. And so, um, the evolutionist claim is that one ancestral pair fused to another. That's their claim. Now, recent reanalysis of human chromosome 2 has contradicted this evolutionary prediction. As a matter of fact, no evidence for a fusion exists. In fact, the alleged site where the fusion supposedly took place actually represents a highly organized functional gene. Um, so think of genes here in this analogy as words or sentences. So thus starting from the assumption of human-ape common ancestry, evolutionists have actually made a failed prediction about the structure and function of DNA within our cells. Again, uh, as often is the case, a lot of these evolution um, predictions are happening before ample research is done to actually make those conclusions. And by the way, isn't that what happened with Darwin? Darwin made predictions about the origin of humanity before, way before, the study of genetics was even a thing. We, we had no idea until about 100 years later um, about how uh, DNA worked or even that it existed, okay? So we have to understand that. All right, now what about junk DNA? This is another huge one that comes up all the time, that, that the vast majority of our DNA would be pseudogenes, right? Or um, useless, quote, junk DNA on the evolutionary view. But the ENCODE project that began um, in the early 2000s has demonstrated that at least 80% of the genome has significant biochemical function. And by the way, that's the um, encyclopedia of um, DNA, all right? So um, now the leader of this project, Iwan Birney, and I might not be saying that name right, but he is predicting that the human genome will soon prove to be 100% functional. Isn't that something? Isn't that something? So let's not make these uh, conclusions um, too early because I think there might just be a little bit uh, of an embarrassment happening there. Now, you know, something that uh, I, I don't really speak to this point often, but I think it's worth pointing out. You know, if you look at all the thousands, of, I mean, not thousands, I mean the, the billions and billions and billions of dollars that has been pumped into secular scientific research, how in the world can you expect research that is aiming to prove another model as better than that, especially that 
is only to be funded by religious groups. Uh, how in the world can you expect it to be as advanced? Uh, I got to be careful because I'll get on a soapbox there. Um, but, you know, the point is, I think creationists are doing pretty good considering what we've had to work with, the limited numbers of creation scientists, um, the documented cases of um, uh, of tenure being lost and, and such things like that with creationists trying to, to, to teach uh, in universities. Um, and the, and the obvious lack of funding. I mean, it's, I think we've done pretty good, uh, considering that not to mention this whole enterprise from a scientific perspective really, really took hold, uh, starting in the sixties. Um, obviously evolutionary science has been happening a lot longer than that. Um, so indeed almost a hundred years longer than that. So, uh, you know, I think we're doing pretty good considering. All right. We need to move on to the next question. So the next question is how many, a population or a pair. Now we need to understand that plugging evolutionary genetic observations, right? If we take those observations without the assumption of deep time does not work as far as plugging those into the creation worldview. Okay. So when we make creationist assumptions, we need to understand, or, or, or let me rephrase that differently. When we make um, creationist predictions, we cannot plug evolutionary assumptions into that because it does not work because the amount of time required is different. All right. Now, the issue is this. Uh, remember, we're talking about a population repair. Where do we arise from? All right. Well, it, it's an obvious fact. And, and one of the one of the biggest deals is evolutionists say that we cannot possibly have come from a pair because of the trail of genetic diversity that we find. In other words, we could not accumulate this much genetic diversity if we just come from a pair of individuals 6,000 years ago. But now understand, and this is the reason I made my first point, they're plugging evolutionary genetic assumptions and the deep time assumptions that come along with millions of years into a time frame of just 6,000 years. And that does not work. Now, this does present an interesting problem, though, because evolutionists would then say, okay, well, if you're a god created two human beings, um, you know, just a few thousand years ago, it stands to reason that they were created genetically similar. Now think about this. It stands to reason that they were created genetically similar. And you, basing off of that observation, this is why they say that it's impossible. We cannot possibly have come from a population just 6,000 years ago. Okay, so that, at face value, seems like a conundrum for the creationists. But one simple common sense observation solves the problem. If God is the inventor of DNA, I think he's pretty smart to know how it would work. Now look, if Adam and Eve had been created genetically identical, their children would have also been genetically identical, which amounts to cloning <laughs> and seems pretty inconsistent with God's command to fill the earth. All right. So in light of that, um, the logical scientific starting assumption that we were created genetically dissimilar. That's what creationists are hypothesizing. Okay. That Adam and Eve were created genetically dissimilar. It explains the genetic diversity we see today 
in modern humans, all right? So the writers claim that this has resulted in successful predictions for other species. And uh, to see more about that, you can look uh, in the Answers Research Journal on uh, Jensen and Lyle. They wrote uh, an article titled, On the Origin of Eukaryotic Species, Genotypic and Phenotypic Diversity. And that is kind of where they make this case and show how this prediction has worked well for what we... uh, uh, what we believe we can observe in the genetic diversity of other species. All right, so that's all we're assuming here. We're just simply assuming that Adam and Eve were created genetically dissimilar, and if you know anything about DNA, they've got two copies of of the um, of the three billion letters of DNA. Okay, so and we're going to talk more about that in a minute. But basically, that would mean there's four. Um, genetic starting points, okay, rather than two for the origin of humanity. We we do not believe that they were created genetically identical because again that would have resulted in pretty much cloning which seems very inconsistent with God's command to fill and multiply the earth okay so um the next question is when when ancient or recent and this is where the authors probably spend um the bulk of their time and so uh you know i wish we could give it as thorough of a treatment as as they do in the book again as always i encourage you to go get the book and check that out so we're going to get into an interesting study here. When, ancient or recent, when when did humanity begin? Now, for a biological clock to be reliable, we must know when it started ticking. We have to know. By the way, to that point, to that point, it is a backwards-working game with uniformitarian assumptions that... Um, helps evolutionists determine when they think humanity began. And if you'll read the news, um, if you'll look at Facebook, if you'll uh, read any scientific publication, you know, this number changes like every week. Like, seriously, on like a weekly or at least a monthly basis, they are completely reinterpreting the origin of humanity, when humanity began and broke off based on new things they're finding and uh, and dating that is all over the place. I mean, this is not an, a nice and tidy solution. Now, is evolution theory a productive framework for biological research? Yes. However, that does not mean it's going to give you accurate information about the world. And as many times as they rewrite the story, I don't think it can. Um, anyway, so we have to know when the clock started ticking. Well, fortunately for creationists, we know when the clock started ticking. So um, the authors write this. So when we're evaluating the billions of DNA letters in our cells and trying to determine when the differences began arising, it's as if we were asked how long a clock has been ticking. So think about it the same way. But then we're told that the clock has at least four hands instead of two, right? Talked about this. Since both Adam and Eve had two versions of their three billion letter DNA sequence. So we have four hands now instead of two. Now, nuclear DNA will not work to accomplish this problem. However, mitochondrial DNA, or mtDNA, as you'll often see it abbreviated, will. And the reason is because creationists and evolutionists agree on its origin. Now, remember, nuclear DNA will not work for this because we completely disagree on the origin. Um, it would, it would, in other words, it would just completely... Um, 
result in a type two or a type three experiment. But because of this, because of the fact that human that um excuse me that creationists and evolutionists actually agree on the origin of mitochondrial DNA or the fact that it can be traced back to one person, um, we can actually turn this into a pretty nice type one experiment. Um, now, the mitochondrial DNA is a tiny subsection of our DNA. It's contained in the energy factories of our cells. And very importantly, only females pass this on to their offspring. So even when you're reading um, evolutionary literature, you will often see something referenced um, mitochondrial Eve. Mitochondrial Eve, okay? And so that's, you know, let's not get confused, um, okay? But that is actually the term that the evolutionists use because they believe it can be traced back to one woman. All right. So unlike the three billion letters of DNA in the cell's nucleus that come in two versions, mitochondrial DNA comes in only one, um, effectively the mother's version. Hence, the uh, mitochondrial DNA differences arise via copying errors and were not created in Eve. So... This is why it's significant, because if the creationist hypothesis is right, that Adam and Eve were created genetically dissimilar, then there's no way to make this a head-to-head experiment, right? Because um, essentially, those uniformitarian assumptions would get in the way. But in this case, we know that the mitochondrial DNA differences arise via the copying errors, okay? And it's not something that was created in Eve. So now this is a type 1 experiment. Again, we could perform this experiment right now and see what happens with our predictions. All right, so here it is. I'm going to go slow so you can kind of be thinking about this in your head. So by multiplying the measured mutation rate of mitochondrial DNA by 180,000 years or by 4,500 years, we can make testable predictions about the time scale of human origins. All right, now let's just look at that real quick. So 180,000 years is about the time frame that evolutionists tend to place modern humanity um, or at least uh, this mitochondrial Eve. This is about the time frame that they place her. Now, I'm I'm sure that by now that number has actually changed. Like I said, it changes every week to every month. This was a book released last year Um, or it might have been the year before. It's either a 2016 or a 2017 book. Okay, so... um, that is the assumptions for the evolutionary time frame for mitochondrial DNA is about 180,000 years. Now, by contrast, the creationist assumption is 4,500 years. Now, not 6,000 years. 6,000 years would put mitochondrial D- um, um, Eve, in this case, being at the beginning of the creation versus post-flood. All right? Now, the um, uh, experiment was used... Um, or was calculated uh, using the flood date rather than creation date for a variety of different factors. We won't go into all those here, um, but one of those factors, um, if you will read the literature that um, that was referenced in the book, is the post-flood speciation rate. And, of course, creationists currently hypothesize that most of the speciation that has taken place in the world, now obviously it's still happening today, but the the bulk of the speciation that happened happened within a 200 to 250 year period post flood. And this has to do with the genetic nature of the animals who came 
off of the ark who used to be in the pre-flood world, which was completely different in many ways. Um, and so we can't get into all that. We just don't have time uh, in this podcast episode. Maybe we'll talk about that sometime. But anyway, just know that for this particular experiment, um, it was the flood date that was used to calculate um, these uh, differences in this experiment. All right, so here is the experiment. After 180,000 years, humans would have accumulated over 2,000 DNA differences. Um, so the range here is 1,220 to roughly 4,700. All right, now this is via the process of mutation to mitochondrial DNA. In just 4,364 years, rather, humans would have accumulated only 30 to 114 mutations. What a significant difference. So, all right, the, going slow, the evolutionary predictions are 1,220 years to about 4,700 years. But the creation predictions are only... Um, or, excuse me, DNA differences. I, I just said years, but I meant 1,220 DNA differences to... Uh, no, over 2,000 DNA differences. I'm going to get this right. Over 2,000 DNA differences, all right, uh, with a range of 1,220 to 4,700. But then the creation predictions are um, accumulated only 30 to 114 mutations. All right, so currently about 78 differences exist on average in African populations, which is the most genetically diverse of all the human ethnic groups with a maximum difference of plus or minus 120. 120 differences, right? So clearly, I mean, this is off the charts, Clearly, the uh, young Earth creation timescale accurately predicts the number of DNA differences that we observe today in the mitochondrial DNA, um, while the evolution timescale predicts numbers in order of magnitude higher. It's, it's, it's staggering. Uh, similar results, by the way, hold true in animal species that they have done this tested on. Now, this is extremely significant, um, and here's why. Because in this case uniformitarian assumptions were used. Uh, remember, uniformitarian assumptions is that certain decay rates and basically all the rates in the processes in the world are constant. Now, this was done in this case in order to be overly generous to the evolutionary paradigm. So, in this case, using their own assumptions, the creationist model is still a better predictor of the data. Now, isn't this interesting? If they claim that rates of genetic chains were different in the past, this is the evolutionist, they've just undermined the foundational assumption of their entire ancient universe and ancient Earth view, right? If they do nothing, they're left with a glaring contradiction between predictions and facts. Hence, these mitochondrial DNA results have implications for the evolutionary view far beyond biology to make the evolutionary paradigm um, as a whole even harder to maintain in a scientifically consistent and coherent way. So this particular experiment is a pretty big deal. Now, in summary, there is uh, no genetic evidence to support an ancient origin for mankind, right? The DNA 
differences in the billions of DNA letters in the cellular compartment termed the nucleus are easily explicable from two people in the last 6,000 years, and the mitochondrial DNA differences observable today are all the more explicable. Now, I might put a little disclaimer of my own today um, on, on this particular um, statement. I don't know that we could just say, well, in summary, there's no genetic evidence to support an ancient origin for mankind. Um, I think it uh, I think that statement is possibly true, but it really depends on your definitions. And again, I'm very interested in being intellectually honest here, so I might take a little bit of issue with the way he says that, um, because just because there is a creationist explanation does not by necessity mean that there's no genetic evidence to support um, an ancient origin for mankind at all. Um, because otherwise you've got 97% of the world scientists adhering to no evidence. I, I don't necessarily think that that's true. So I might take issue with that statement a little bit. But um, nevertheless, it is true that the nuclear DNA differences are easily explicable, all right, uh, for two people in the last 6,000 years under a creation view because it would make sense to assume that they were created Adam and Eve were created genetically dissimilar. And of course, the mitochondrial DNA differences um, are even more explicable on our uh, view. Okay, so that is uh, one set of factors. All right, and the last question that they ask is where? Where? Africa or Ararat? So, um, in other words, evolutionists posit that Africans evolved first, right? They gave rise to non-African groups. Um, and in contrast, young Earth creation scientists posit that the simultaneous origin of the major ethnic groups happened very soon after the dispersion at the Tower of Babel. So, these are... Um, Two very different uh, models, all right? So while uh, mitochondrial DNA calculations place Africans as having been around longer than non-Africans, um, genetically speaking here, these results are based on the invalid assumption that the generation times, time from birth of parent to birth of child across all ethnic groups are the same. So when when evolution scientists okay run these calculations on Africans as having as having been around longer, um, they're using an assumption that generation times are the same okay across all ethnic groups. Uh, but the data bears out something a little different. Um, and so um, the writers claim that on average, African females marry earlier in life than non-African females. And about 32% of African women who are married, um, or excuse me, are married by ages 15 to 19, whereas only 12% uh, of non-African women are married by the same age. That's a significant difference, uh, a threefold difference, and it disappears at later ages. Um, so about the same number of African and non-African women, um, in other words, are married by their 30s and 40s, suggesting that the generation time in Africans might actually be about twice as fast as the generation time in non-Africans. Now, since mitochondrial DNA is passed on maternally, these data imply that some African ethnic groups have twice as many mitochondrial DNA differences because twice as many generations have passed in their lineages um, compared to non-African lineages. So uh, you're starting to see the picture here that uh, the uh, assumptions of where humanity began are based on something that is simply factually not accurate. All right. So the young earth predictions um, correctly predicted that the African mitochondrial DNA differences under the assumption of a higher generation time, uh, again, assuming a generation time of 15 years, um, 
the um, YEC model, uh, Younger Creation model, predicts 69 to 114 DNA differences in 4,364 years, which captures perfectly the average amount of differences we actually find, which is 78, among Africans. So here we have another issue where the data is lining up much closer to to our end of the ballgame. Now, the mitochondrial DNA differences among non-Africans, about 49, were predictable under um, the recent creation model by assuming a generation time of 25 years with a predicted range of differences from 41 to 69. So, thus, the factor of higher mitochondrial DNA diversity in Africans does indeed appear to be due to their earlier age of marriage, and presumably of childbearing, uh, so not to their supposed ancient evolutionary origin. Again, as often happens, there is a second explanation to the data. You don't just have to believe the one side of the story. Even if it makes sense, there might be another explanation. In this case, there most certainly is. The fact that their um, marriage and childbearing age is significantly different from other ethnic groups. Now, evolutionists tend to apply the same logic to nuclear DNA as well, uh, but as the authors state, it appears that Africans reshuffle or recombine their data, uh, or excuse me, their DNA at higher rates and or in different places than non-Africans, which again would explain their extra combinations um, in technical terms, the lower linkage disequilibrium of DNA, a conclusion that even the evolutionary community concedes. So this is not just us. Uh, This is not pseudoscience. This is what uh, even the mainstream community believes. The Y chromosome changes are the last bet, really, for evolutionists. This is the last place where they could come in and make some predictions that could possibly help uh, to save their position on this case a little bit. Um, But Unfortunately, no rate of gene conversion has been published for that as of yet. Um, We, of course, are predicting from a recent creation perspective that this will also be twice as fast. Uh, So in this case, I guess time will tell, right? So wrapping up, uh, why aren't these conclusions supported by the mainstream? You know, this is a question that we get sometimes. And this is a question that uh, Jensen takes actually quite a little bit of time uh, here at the end of this chapter to to answer. He really, you can tell his passion and heart for this, and he really struggles um, with the fact that uh, the research being done is not accepted um, past recent creation circles, despite uh, our willingness to work with them. And so, uh, you know, he mentions a variety of things. He mentions the fact that they often claim evolutionists uh, do, that we don't publish in reputable peer review Um you know, literature, but again, we do. And I've even written about that on my blog before, uh, about the five myths of peer review and higher education. Um, so we obviously do publish in peer reviewed um, uh, papers. And yes, we do publish um, in papers that share a like um, understanding about the origin of humanity. Um, we're not asking um, evolutionists to uh, necessarily to run their information through our papers, but most certainly they could. Otherwise, it appears that they are guilty of doing the same thing. It appears that evolutionists only run their data through uh, through uh, papers that have scientists who um, only agree with their uh, idea of origins. All right, so it's a double standard. Okay. Um, 
Again, they say we have a lack of testable predictions, but I think as we just demonstrated, we obviously don't. Um, Jeetson also reflects on the fact that they have at least some sort of spiritual bias, not a you know man-made conspiracy kind of thing, but a, a quite frankly, a satanic spiritual bias. And this is true if Romans 1 is true, right? Uh, at a certain point, God gives them over. They've suppressed the truth and unrighteousness long enough that God just simply gives them over. And uh, in professing themselves to be wise, they become fools. And they begin, uh, even though they may be smart people, they begin to believe some very unreasonable things about the world. Jensen laments that uh, the few uh, theistic evolutionists, science, uh, scientists, with whom the authors of this chapter have, have personally communicated seem to have no interest in in the young earth creationist scientific literature. When we've presented them with the opportunity to engage the scientific data by pleading with them to rigorously peer-review creationist findings before publication, they have declined. One theistic evolutionist had even admitted a past bias toward opponents, confessing that he viewed them as dumb and uninformed. If this is how professing Christians behave when confronted with contrary evidence— how much more so the unbelieving scientists? And I, I, I agree with his lament. I mean, that is a really, really sad reality. Um, and by the way, uh, this is a completely true statement. I have seen many, many public statements, um, especially in the ARG, uh, or, or ARJ rather, the Answers Research Journal, um, dealing with this, inviting, inviting uh, contrasting opinion, and yet they rarely ever do so. Rarely ever. Uh, I've seen one one or two responses from evolutionary scientists, and that's about all. So in sum, the vast majority of the scientific world is at odds with the conclusions uh, that the authors have presented here about human genetic origins, because they appear to have never educated themselves on their opponents' scientific positions. That's the sad reality of the world we live in, but nevertheless, we're going to push forward. We're going to keep doing more research. We're going to keep trying to explain the world from the recent creationist perspective the best way that we can. And, and we're certainly going to continue to proclaim that view on this podcast and, and uh, teach you that you can be confident and trust God's word in what it has to say about the world. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we love you. I want to say we're thankful for the opportunity to study your word and, and your world. Thank you so much for good scientists and good writers who come before us with information like this and help us to remain more confident in what we believe. Father, we know that we deal not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and uh, the ruler of darkness, Lord, in this world. And we know that we, we face a spiritual battle every day that is much, much more difficult than even sometimes we realize. God, I pray that you would be with us. Um, help guard our hearts. Father, help guard our minds from um, from bad thinking and from bad ideas. And I pray, Lord, that you would just help us to boldly proclaim your gospel everywhere that we go. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, I want to thank you again for joining me this week. Uh, again, um, head on over uh, if you are interested in learning about uh, biblical creation. I mean, you want to take a deep dive. Of course, we talk about it here on this podcast. Uh, that's what this podcast is. Um, but we've got uh, a brand new membership site that we just announced called um, the Creation Academy. And you can find it at jointca.co. 
jointca.co. Now, it's not live yet. We announced the other week that we're looking at a 2019 launch, but you can go there right now and get signed up for the waiting list. Put your name down. Get on the waiting list. It's only going to cost $6.99 per month when it launches. You don't have to give us any. I mean, it's free um, to get on the waiting list. You don't have to give us a credit card number or anything. You just enter your name. Actually, we're going to give you something. If you'll sign up on the waiting list, you get free access ahead of time to our exclusive Facebook group. And this means that you can continue to be in the group even if you never end up paying, right? To be in, I mean, because once once this thing launches, um, that's going to be one of the paid benefit perks. But right now, you can get in on that um, that perk and actually even help develop ideas around uh, the kind of content that we're going to be launching. You can be a part of building the Creation Academy uh, for free. All you have to do is go over there, sign up uh, on jointca.co, read a little bit about it. I think you're going to be really interested in in some of the learning opportunities that we're hoping to create. Uh, also, and this is not something I mention often, but if you are um, in need of somebody to come to your your church uh, and speak on these matters uh, about creation, evolution, or about apologetics in general, head on over to steveshram.com slash preaching, steveshram.com slash preaching. And I will be sure to put that in the show notes so that you can go there and look at some of the topics that I have. Um, I do speak on, obviously, creation and evolution. I speak on various um, apologetics topics. I speak on how to defend the faith. And so um, I do encourage you to go there and check that out and um, invite us in. Uh, We don't charge anything to come. Uh, We simply just request that you would maybe take up a love offering for us and help with our traveling expenses. But um, anyway, I'd love to come minister to your church, Um, speak for, you know, uh, a Sunday morning or a Sunday night or both, or spend a couple days there and do a revival or a conference of some sort speaking about these things. So um, if God lays that on your heart, you just reach out to us, head over to steveshram.com slash preaching, and that'll also be in the show notes. And you can certainly go there and, uh, and invite us in to come speak for you, all right? So again, we want to thank you for joining us this week uh, on the Creation Academy. It means a lot that you would spend your uh, time with us, and I hope this chapter on genetic evidence for a recent creation has been helpful to you. And um, we will see you next week, all right? God bless, and have a good one. Bye-bye.